Get ready for a deep dive into what made Selena Quintanilla a superstar in the new Netflix show, Selena the Series. From playing small gigs with her family to Selena's spectacular rise to fame, Selena the Series takes us behind the scenes of the Quintanilla family's journey through the highs and lows of success and music, all while honoring Selena's legacy. Watch Selena the Series, now only on Netflix. Support for this podcast comes from WGU. Do you want a more skilled, loyal, and effective workforce? Consider a partnership with Western Governors University. Over 300 organizations already count on WGU for valuable education benefits. Students can fit schooling around their schedules and even complete courses and degrees sooner than planned. And it's all online. Partner with WGU to make a smart investment in your company's and your employees' future. Learn more at wgu.edu slash partnerships. Nine Days in July is a production of iHeartRadio and Tradecraft Studios in association with High Five Content. September 3rd, 1951, in the air of Pedronai, Korea. Do you hear that sound? That's the roar of a Grumman F9 Panther. Holding the stick is a 21-year-old, well, boy. He's a newly minted lieutenant junior grade, and he's only been in the Navy for two and a half years. It's the height of the Korean War. Our pilot is in one of five U.S. Navy fighter jets flying over a narrow road known as Green Six. The ground is blurring beneath him at 350 miles per hour. The squadron's mission is to bomb some freight yards and a bridge the enemy is using to resupply their troops. While the men have been warned they're going into a hot zone, none are prepared for what they encounter. Anti-aircraft guns at 10 and 3 o'clock. Keep your heads on a swivel, but don't break formation. According to one of the pilots, the anti-aircraft fire was so thick it looked as if he could have climbed out of his jet and walked on top of it. Line up behind me. I'm beginning my run. The pilot in the jet just in front of ours is Lieutenant Frank Sistrunk. He's heading for the bridge. I'm hit. The lead panther is struck. Lieutenant Sistrunk's aircraft spirals into the ground, exploding on impact. Our pilot doesn't have time to mourn or panic. He inhales deeply takes aim. His aircraft is also hit. As he wrestles to maintain control, his panther plows into a metal cable strung across the valley as a booby trap for low-flying aircraft. The cable slices through the panther's right wing, shearing off nearly six feet, narrowly missing the cockpit. Our pilot manages to stay aloft just long enough to return to friendly territory. But there is no way he's landing this plane. Facing an impossible decision, he has no choice but to eject over a rice paddy. Cracking his helmet in half and breaking his tailbone in the process. This is Apollo Control at 22 hours, 49 minutes ground elapsed time. Spacecraft communicator here in Mission Control with Bruce McCandless is standing by to make a call to the crew. It's July 17th, 1969 day two of the Apollo 11 mission. Apollo 11 has left planet Earth and is on its way to the moon. As the crew begins their first full day in space, it's the perfect time to tell you how Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins became the dream team, as well as how a handful of kids built mission control. But first, let's check in with the capsule communicator, who's decided it's time to wake our crew with some morning news from Earth. 
Apollo 11, this is Houston. Uh, when you're ready to copy 11, I've got the morning news. This will become a tradition. Each day, the Capcom and Mission Control will let the astronauts know what's going on on the planet they left behind. Okay, we're all listening. Immigration officials in Nuevo Laredo announced Wednesday that hippies will be refused tourist cards to enter Mexico unless they take a bath and get haircuts. It's sometimes hard to remember, given all of these clean-cut NASA types running around, that 1969 was also the epicenter of the hippie movement. For historical context, the Woodstock Music Festival, perhaps the most famous expression of hippie culture, is less than one month away. The House of Lords was assured Wednesday that a midget American submarine would not, quote, damage or assault, unquote, the Loch Ness Monster. In 1961, the British tabloid Daily Express said, no one will ever understand Loch Ness. Its conquest will be a greater triumph than the conquest of the moon. Fitting then that a 26-year-old Georgia man named Dan Taylor built <clears throat> a yellow submarine in his garage and shipped it to Scotland where he planned to fire biopsy darts into the creature so scientists could figure out exactly what it was. Luckily, the most famous sea monster in history was safe from the midget sub. The Loch Ness Monster was nowhere to be found. This is Apollo Control. Apollo 11's distance from Earth is 99,308 nautical miles. Velocity, 5,411 feet per second. Uh, the Earth should be a lot smaller in your field of view today, and I'm sure you're a lot more qualified to tell us about that than we are. It's true. Exactly one day after their Saturn V left the Earth, Michael thinks to himself that his home planet appears no larger than the watch face on his wrist. It's really a fantastic sight. Uh, Roger, we all envy the view up there. Today is all about mission-critical housekeeping, ensuring their metallic home, currently moving at nearly 3,700 miles an hour, remains in tip-top shape. This means purging fuel cells, stirring oxygen tanks, recharging batteries, dumping wastewater, and chlorinating their drinking water. All of it is essential to getting them from here to where they need to go. Remember the story that opened our show? Our pilot whose F-9 Panther was so badly damaged that he had to eject over a rice paddy, breaking both his helmet and his tailbone? Well, that pilot was none other than Neil Armstrong. It's time to meet the astronauts of Apollo 11. Neil Armstrong was born on August 5th, 1930 in Wapakoneta, Ohio, a small town of barely 5,000 people. James Hansen wrote Neil's definitive biography, First Man. From the time he was this very small boy, he became passionate about the whole idea of airplanes. And as a boy, Neil just begged his mother for the model airplane. And as he got older, his model airplanes got more and more complicated. Just before his sixth birthday, Neil and his father skipped Sunday school to take a ride in a Ford Trimotor. Do you remember the plane that Indiana Jones, Willie, and Short Round jumped out of in the beginning of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? That's a Ford Trimotor. It was there, in those wicker seats, that Neil realized he wanted to spend the rest of his life in the sky. At age 15, he began working in the stockroom of a local pharmacy, earning 40 cents an hour to pay for flying lessons. At the little grass airfield outside of his town of Wapakoneta, Ohio, where they were living, uh, he soloed and got his pilot's license on the very day of his birthday. Neil could pilot an aircraft, but he wasn't even old enough to drive a car. At 17, Neil graduated from high school and began studying aeronautical engineering at nearby Purdue University. While he'd been accepted to MIT, 
His family convinced him to take advantage of a new post-war government program that paid for students' tuition if they would commit to three years flight service with the U.S. Navy. He finished two years of schooling when the Korean War started. And so he was notified that uh, at the end of his second year, he would need to report to Pensacola, Florida, where the Naval Aviation Training took place. Then suddenly, in the pre-dawn darkness of June 25, 1950, South Koreans were jarred awake by a living nightmare. Unprovoked and unannounced, the communist latest war of conquest had begun. Edwin Eugene Aldrin Jr. was born into a flying family on January 20th, 1930, in New Jersey. His father was a World War I Army pilot and later served as the assistant commandant of the Army's test pilot school. Young Edwin was the youngest of three children. His sister, Faye Ann, who was just a year and a half older, struggled with the word brother. She consistently pronounced it as buzzer. Edwin enjoyed her mispronunciation so much that he shortened it to buzz and adopted it as his own. Buzz was a terrific student and a champion football player in high school. His father wanted him to attend the U.S. Naval Academy, but Buzz stood up to him. He wanted to fly, not sail. There was no U.S. Air Force yet, so if you wanted to fly in the military and you didn't like boats, you joined the Army Air Corps. Buzz did just as well at West Point as he did in high school, graduating third in his class. The Korean War had broken out during his junior year, and he now chose to transition out of the Army and into the brand new Air Force even though he knew he'd be heading straight for the front lines. Support for this podcast comes from The First One with DJ Khaled, a new podcast only available on Amazon Music. What's up, y'all? This is DJ Khaled, and this is The First One. We hear from all the A-list music stars like J Balvin, Nas, and Kelly Rowland about songs that didn't change the game, but changed their life. It's almost like sometimes before you even get in the industry, it's like you set up to fail. And there's so many moments where you can win. And the winning is great, but it's so many things that you go through to get to the win. And so much more who tell their stories about the first hits that took them to the next level, changed their life, overlooked to being overbooked. When I was recording the song, I already knew it was going to be a global hit. And I'm not joking, my G. I really felt it inside of me. I was like... I just can't wait to see a number one. Join me every Thursday with the first one drops only on Amazon Music. Let's go. Tech entrepreneurs are in an all-out race to cash in on our collective addiction to social media. It's a fight that started in Silicon Valley that's now gone global. Hi, I'm David Brown, the host of Wondery's show Business Wars. We go deep into some of the biggest corporate rivalries of all time. And in our latest series, we track the war between Chinese and American startups as they duke it out for our eyeballs. But tastes are fickle. Join us for TikTok versus Instagram. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Like Buzz, Michael Collins' father was in the Army, assigned to a base in Rome, Italy, when Michael entered the world on Halloween Day, 1930. Over the next 17 years, Michael called eight different military bases home. One of those bases was in Puerto Rico, where a teenage Michael took his first plane ride aboard a Grumman Widgeon, a small aircraft that could take off and land in the water. He even took controls for part of the flight and was immediately hooked. Michael finished high school in Washington, D.C., his mother was keen for him to work as a diplomat, but Michael wanted to follow his father into military service. 
He attended West Point and graduated in 1952, two years after Buzz, with a bachelor's degree in military science. Buzz graduated third in his class. Michael, 185th. I went to West Point primarily because it was a, a, a free and good education. When I graduated from the um, military academy, there was no Air Force Academy, but we had a choice of either going into the Army or the Air Force. The, uh, the Air Force seemed like a more interesting choice. Had he not transitioned to the Air Force, we wouldn't be talking about him today. This is Apollo Control. The ignition time for this mid-course correction will be 26 hours, 44 minutes, 57 seconds. Back in Apollo 11, more than 108,000 miles from the Earth and traveling at more than 3,400 miles an hour, the crew is preparing to make a minor course correction. Yesterday, the third stage of the Saturn V launched Apollo 11 toward the moon. Isaac Newton is currently piloting Apollo 11. An object in motion will stay in motion unless acted upon by some other force. But the crew does need to make small course corrections here and there. One minute to the burn. The duration will be three seconds. Burning. Shut down. Houston burn completed. You copy in our residuals? Uh, affirmative. That was a good burn. Apollo 11 will now begin a series of passive thermal control burns. The astronauts have dubbed this barbecue mode because the spacecraft spins like a rotisserie chicken to ensure one side of the spacecraft is not always exposed to the blistering heat of the sun. Hey, Jim, I'm uh, working through the monocular now. And uh, I guess the point of the expression of the view is just uh, out of this world. Yeah, we see a bunch of roads with cars driving up and down. That was Michael, ever the class clown. Chances are, if someone on this mission is cracking a joke or horsing around, it's Michael. He and Buzz are chatting with astronaut Jim Lovell, who has temporarily taken over at Capcom. How does it feel to be airborne again, Buzz? Well, I tell you, I've been having a ball floating around inside here. Lovell and Buzz shared a far smaller capsule three years earlier on their Gemini mission. But that's jumping too far ahead in our story. When we last checked in with our crew's younger selves, becoming astronauts wasn't even on their radar screens. They had far larger things to worry about, like surviving 140 collective combat missions in the skies over Korea. That's 140 different times when our boys could have suffered the same fate as the more than 36,000 American warfighters who perished in the Korean War. When Neil's number got called, he was just 19. A year or so later, he'd already made his first aircraft carrier landing. In late 1950, he became the youngest officer at VF-51, the Screaming Eagles, the Navy's first all-jet fighter squadron. Here's Hanson again. Once that squadron was, then its pilots were ready to go, they got aboard their carrier, the Essex, which headed over to the Sea of Japan, where they began operations uh, to fly over North Korea during the Korean War. Neil flew nearly 80 combat missions over Korea, including the one we profiled at the beginning of this podcast. His active duty commission ended when he was only 22, and he transferred back to the United States. As Neil was leaving Korea, Buzz was just getting there. After his initial flight training, 2nd Lieutenant Aldrin had to decide what kind of aircraft he wanted to pilot. His father recommended bombers. Once again, Buzz stood up to his old man and chose fighters. In late 1952, Buzz began patrolling an area of Korea the servicemen dubbed MiG Alley, looking for enemy fighters heading south to terrorize American troops. On May 14, 1953, he was in his F-86 Sabre when he spotted an enemy aircraft below him. Buzz locked his guns on his target and shot the plane down. 
Less than a month later, the tables were turned. A MiG surprised Buzz and moved in behind him for the kill. Buzz had only one chance, a high G maneuver in which he kept crossing over the MiG's direction of travel while cutting his speed. Buzz hoped his adversary would miscalculate and overshoot him. His plan worked. His 50 caliber machine gun brought the enemy plane down. Back on Apollo 11, Michael Collins, of course, is joking around with Jim Lovell about all the housekeeping chores Houston has the crew doing. I've been very busy so far. I'm looking forward to taking the afternoon off. I've been uh, cooking and uh, sweeping and almost sewing and, and, you know, the usual little housekeeping things. It was very convenient the way they put the food preparation system right next to the nav station. Everything's right next to everything in the station. That was Armstrong reminding Lovell that in a spacecraft this small, everything's within arm's reach. While the crew takes a break for lunch, Bruce McCandless returns to the Capcom position. Roger, is that music I hear in the background? Buzz is singing. Okay. Just call me Michael's having a joke at Bruce's expense. The crew is enjoying Angel of the Morning by Merrily Rush and the Turnabouts. Shortly after they conclude their lunch, the crew passes a significant milestone. Apollo 11's distance from the moon is 105,729 nautical miles at the present time. In terms of distance, Apollo 11 has just passed the halfway point on its trip to the moon. In terms of time, they still have more than a day's journey. Based on the present trajectory, Apollo 11 will enter the lunar sphere of influence at an elapsed time of 61 hours, 39 minutes, 58 seconds. The lunar sphere of influence is that point at which the gravity of the moon becomes stronger than the gravity of the Earth. Here's Apollo 11. Go ahead, 11. Hello, Charlie. Is that you? Uh, that's me. How are you? Oh, just fine. How's the old white team today? Uh, the old white team's uh, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. Uh, we're ever alert down here. It's time to meet Neil Buzz and Michael's co-pilots in Mission Control. These are the guys who keep a close watch over the spacecraft's trajectory, hardware and software, as well as the crew's health. These unsung heroes are the backbone of every NASA mission. They operate out of a place the initiated reverently refer to as the cathedral. The high priest of the cathedral is the flight director, whose call sign is simply flight. These men were responsible for overseeing every element of any given mission. While a mission was in progress, not even the NASA administrator or the president of the United States could countermand an order given by flight. If they wanted to overrule him, they had to fire him. Flight supervises a hive mind of brilliant kids. And I say kids because for most of the men helming these consoles, this was their first job out of college. Why were they so young? Simple. NASA needed flight controllers fluent in the latest emergent technologies, meaning computers. Bill Barry is NASA's chief historian. Who's an expert on going into space? Nobody. <laughs> you know, that, was, that, that capability didn't really exist. You know, admission control, their you know, average age is uh, about 26. Uh, and so it's a really young group of folks uh, who you know, really set the stage for getting to the moon and really create our space program. I'm Stephen Bales. I was the guidance officer on Apollo 11. By the time the Apollo 11 mission flew, I was 26. Uh, the people that led us were older. For example, Gene Cranston was 36, I believe. And then we called them the older folks. 36. <laughs> older. If you picture mission control in your mind, it looks like something straight out of a movie. 
a high-tech control center dominated by massive display screens flanked by four long rows of 20 consoles. The first of our four rows is known as the Trench. These guys' job was monitoring what the ship was doing and where it was going. Let's take a look at our mission control roster. The Flight Dynamics Officer, or FIDO, supervises the spacecraft's trajectory over the course of the entire mission. Guido is the Guidance Officer. He monitors Apollo's onboard systems, making sure where the spacecraft is and where it thinks it is are aligned. When we get to the moon landing, you're going to get to know Steve Bales and this console very well. Retro is the Retro Fire Officer. His job is getting the crew back home again. Taken together, Fido, Guido, and Retro are Apollo 11's ground pilots. Behind the trench is a second row of consoles, which includes the surgeon. That position is occupied by a medical doctor responsible for monitoring the health of the crew. To avoid chaos and confusion, the astronauts only ever communicate with a single person in mission control, the capsule communicator or CAPCOM. You should already know this position pretty well. The person in this seat is always an astronaut. The flight director oversees everything from the third row. The final top row is reserved for various agency management and the public affairs officer, giving play-by-play -play commentary for the public. Obviously, these guys can't stay at their consoles 24-7. Apollo 11 had four rotating shifts, divided into the black, white, green, and maroon teams. And that's not even everybody. There were also hundreds of other mission control technicians working in various back rooms throughout the building, directly supporting each of the consoles we just ran through, plus nearly two dozen more. Oh, and one last thing. This was a man's world, if ever there was one. But that didn't mean there weren't women already taking pickaxes to that glass ceiling. I was hired as what was called a computress. It occurred to me that I was as smart as those guys. <laughs> they were earning a lot more money than I was. That's Poppy Northcutt. She had a degree in mathematics and was hired by TRW, a NASA contractor, to check the work of the male engineers in mission control. Unlike her male colleagues who were salaried, Poppy, because she was a woman, was hourly and not paid beyond nine hours a day. My supervisor would come around and tell me, you know, at six o'clock, state law says we can't pay you. And I would just say, I understand that. I just keep on working. Poppy would not only come in early and stay late, she would bring her work home with her, going over everything until she knew it backwards and forwards. I think that was the real key to why I got promoted and other people didn't. I really became a member of the team. Poppy was assigned to the retro flight controller. Her job was to help compute the trajectories that ensured the Apollo spacecraft traveled to and from the moon safely. She was the first woman to ever work in mission control. I didn't know I was going to be the first female engineer in mission control when I walked in there. And you're certainly aware that you stand out and that you're an object of attention. And it's, it's always a little uncomfortable, uh, especially if your whole idea is that you want to be a member of the team. I mean, you want to blend into the team. You don't want to be standing out. Poppy, 25, was tall, blonde, and beautiful. She did stand out. ABC's Jules Bergman once interviewed her, asking, how much attention do men in mission control pay to a pretty girl wearing miniskirts? Yeah, she was swimming in a sea of sexism. My feeling was that it was important for women, and, and men for that matter, to know that women could do these jobs, so you had to put up with a certain amount of that stuff. And with that, let's return to Apollo 11, where Michael is running an experiment to mess with mission control, because that's what astronauts with a bit of spare time in their hands do. Hey, you got any uh, medics down there watching heart rate? I'm uh, trying to do some running in place. 
delays down here, and I'm wondering just out of curiosity whether it breaks my heart rate up. Uh, well, they will spring into action here momentarily. Stand by. Michael is running in place, in zero gravity. He's curious if the exertion, without actually impacting any surfaces, will increase his heart rate and show up on the flight surgeon's monitors. Soon, Neil and Buzz decide to join him. We're all running in place. Are you in place? I'd like to see that sight. Why don't you give us a TV picture of that one? Ask him what he's running from. Uh, 11 uh, Houston. Uh, Mike, we see about a 96 uh, heartbeat now. Well, that's about all is this reasonable without getting hot and sweaty. Michael decides to halt his experiment. Remember, there are no showers on Apollo 11. After the war, Neil went back to school. Korea had hijacked his degree, and now it was time to jump back in. I was 22. I was really getting old. Old man. <laughs> we have this image of Neil as a stick in the mud. But he joined a fraternity, wrote and co-directed two student musicals, and played in the Purdue All-American Marching Band. And, of course, he continued flying. At a party one night, he met Janet Elizabeth Sharon, a home economics major. NASA historian James Hansen. Janet grew up in suburban Chicago, a very different kind of upbringing than Neil. She went to Purdue, and she was very popular there. She's a very attractive and, and vivacious uh, young woman. Neil told his roommates later that night that he'd just met his future wife. But it still took him three years to finally ask her out on a date. He was not the sort of person to rush into anything. In January of 1955, Neil graduated Purdue with a degree in aeronautical engineering. The following year, he married Janet. Soon, the happy couple moved to a small off-the-grid cabin in Southern California, where Neil began work as an experimental research test pilot at Edwards Air Force Base. Edwards is the flight test center of the United States Air Force Air Research and Development Command. Here, men in search of truth fly into the world of the future. Edwards is the place where all the really hot new experimental airplanes were being tested. It was here, nearly a decade earlier, that Chuck Yeager first broke the sound barrier in the Bell X-1, Glamorous Glennis. And he does it, the first human to crack the sound barrier. Decades later, the facility would become a NASA campus and be renamed the Neil Armstrong Flight Research Center. But we're clearly getting ahead of ourselves. Neil's fellow pilots were astonished at his flying prowess, as well as his ability to master dozens of different aircraft. He was regarded as intense and enigmatic. In a field of swagger and bluster, he rarely opened his mouth. He let his superb flying do all the talking. But that didn't mean he didn't have a close call or two. There was the time in the spring of 1956 when Neil was co-piloting a B-29 Superfortress when one of the propellers shattered. It shredded the engine beside it and launched shrapnel through the fuselage, destroying one of the engines on the opposite wing. Armstrong and his co-pilot landed the massive bomber using only one of its four engines. Neil's next brush with death was in something a bit more high-tech. The X-15 was more rocket than plane and flew at the boundary of space. Before the X-15, the question had been, what is to be man's role in space travel? Can he pilot an aircraft out of the Earth's atmosphere, fly it in space, then re-enter the atmosphere and bring it back to a safe landing on Earth? During one particular descent, the X-15's nose refused to pitch downward, meaning that the plane kept bouncing off of the atmosphere. 
Over the course of his life, Neil would have more than a half dozen brushes with death. So for six years, basically, he's flying almost every day. You know, without that experience, he really would not have been ready for the astronaut experience. Neil might have had the perfect experience, but he was ineligible to become an astronaut. He was no longer in the military, and an active duty status was a NASA requirement. After the Korean War ended, Buzz returned home and married Joan Archer, a young woman his parents had set him up with shortly before he went overseas. She was a stage actress with a master's in theater from Columbia University. Their wedding day was only the fifth time they'd ever gone out together. Joan called marriage her greatest role. One of Buzz's fellow officers at his new squadron was Ed White. Ed was getting a master's degree in aeronautical engineering because he wanted to be an astronaut and encouraged Buzz to do the same. Buzz enrolled at MIT and went all in, getting a doctorate instead. Dr. Buzz Aldrin graduated in early 1963 with a degree in astronautics. His doctoral thesis was titled Line of Sight Guidance Techniques for Manned Orbital Rendezvous. He dedicated the thesis to those working in America's space program. If only I could join them in their exciting endeavors, Buzz admitted in the dedication. Buzz had applied for NASA's Gemini program, but his application was rejected. Another NASA requirement was that all astronaut candidates had to be test pilots. Neil and Buzz were out of the running. That left Michael Collins. Michael never went to war. By the time he graduated from flight training, the Korean War was over. In 1956, Michael met his wife, Patricia Finnegan, at the Base Officers Club. She was a social worker taking some time off to see the world. They were married the following year and were soon joined by two daughters and a son. Pat gushed about how wonderful a husband and father Michael was. Unlike many of his colleagues, Michael was able to leave work at the office. At home, he was happy, relaxed, and devoted to his family. Maybe that's because he hated his job, commanding an aircraft mechanic school. He still managed to get in more than 1,500 flight hours, the minimum requirement for the Air Force's experimental test pilot school at, where else, Edwards Air Force Base. And in 1960, he began flying the most technically challenging and futuristic aircraft rolling off the line. Godspeed, John Glenn. But after John Glenn became the first American to orbit the Earth on February 20th, 1962, Michael instantly knew what he wanted to do. It was a simple, logical thing to go on to the next increment, which was higher and faster and become an astronaut rather than a test pilot. The Air Force was behind him all the way, going so far as to send him to specialized training and even charm school to increase his chances. But despite it all, Michael, like Neil and Buzz, was rejected. I didn't make that. I didn't have sufficient experience, they said. None of these men were ever going to see space. Now that their housekeeping duties have been accomplished, it's time for the crew of Apollo 11 to begin their first scheduled color telecast, transmitting their incredible views back to their home planet. Neil begins by describing the view of Earth out Apollo 11's windows. Roger, you're seeing Earth as we see it at our left-hand window. We're looking at the eastern Pacific Ocean, so we can see uh, North America. Uh, you guys are doing a good job. It's a real steady picture here. Clarity is uh, excellent. Today, we're so used to images of our beautiful spherical planet that it's necessary to be reminded that just 50 years ago, seeing Earth from space was still a unique and awe-inspiring thing. The person holding the camera so steadily is Michael. But, always the jokester, he can't pass up an opportunity to give millions of people back on Earth vertigo. Okay, uh, world, hold on to your hat. I'm going to turn you upside down. He begins spinning the camera. 
Uh, 11, that's a pretty good roll there. Uh, that's pretty sloppy, Charlie. Let me try that one again. You'll never beat out the Thunderbirds. Charlie Duke is mocking Michael's camera work, claiming he'll never be better than the Air Force's aerobatic demonstration squadron. I'm making myself seasick, Charlie. I'll just put you back right side up where you belong. Roger. If you could uh, comply, we'd uh, like to see uh, some smiling faces up there. If you could give us some interior views, I'm sure everybody would like to see you over. Mission Control has seen enough of the Earth. Charlie wants to see the astronauts themselves. Can't quite make out who that had. That's big Mike Collins there. Yeah, hello there, sports fans. You got a little bit of me, plus Neil's in the center couch, and Buzz is doing the camera work this time. Well, I put on a coat and tie if I'd known about this ahead of time. Uh, Roger, looks like uh, Neil is coming in five by there. Uh, Eleven. Yeah, Neil's standing on his head again. He's trying to make me nervous. Buzz must have enjoyed his exercise earlier because he decides to demonstrate how the crew stays physically fit in zero gravity. If we can uh, get some of the wires untangled here, we'll uh, give you a demonstration of how easy push-ups are up here. Buzz begins doing some push-ups on what is, according to the orientation of the camera, the command module's floor. And it gets pretty hard doing it that way, why we just roll over and do it the other way. He begins doing more push-ups off the ceiling. All uh, right, we copy. Couldn't figure out whether that was a chin-up or a push-up. Just take your choice, I guess. Clearly, the guys are enjoying weightlessness. When we last checked in with Neil, Buzz, and Michael, they had each been rejected by the astronaut program. Buzz had no test pilot experience. Michael didn't have enough. And Neil was no longer in the military. All requirements to be an astronaut. But as time went on, NASA began changing its rules. It no longer required active duty military service. Civilians could now apply. But Neil didn't even know if he wanted to. In those days, spaceflight was not generally regarded as a realistic objective. That was a bit pie in the sky. I was flying the X-15, and I had the understanding or belief that uh, if I continued, I, I would be the chief pilot of that project. Ironically, it was all those hours in the X-15 that made him a shoe-in to be selected. Or at least, he would have been, had he sent his application in on time. NASA's James Hansen. Neil's daughter, Karen, two and a half years old, dies in late January 1962. She had a glioma of the pons, which is a very malignant brain tumor. Uh, that had been diagnosed a few months earlier. So the call for a new class of astronauts came right during that spring, when he was still a very significantly affected by the daughter's death. Luckily, someone at NASA knew of Neil's incredible skills and snuck his tardy application into the pile. He got the job. He thought maybe it was time for a fresh start, and I think Janet felt that way about it, too. While initially depressed after his NASA rejection, Michael Collins threw himself into his work with even greater abandon. He began flying the F-104 Starfighter, which was capable of flying at 90,000 feet. Any higher, and you'd have to call it a spacecraft. In 1963, when NASA again began calling for astronauts, Michael resubmitted his application. He'd now logged more than 4,200 hours of flight time. The second time was the charm. This time, Project Gemini came calling. Hi, I'm Trevor Noah of The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, which is also a podcast. Did you miss last night's episode? Catch up with The Daily Show with Trevor Noah Ears Edition, it's everything you love about The Daily Show, except for the dimples. But we are working on technology to make an audio version of those too. 
You can listen to the podcast Monday to Friday mornings everywhere podcasts are available. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah is edition. Subscribe now. Support for this podcast comes from CDW NHP. At CDW, we get that an unsecured laptop can put your company's data at risk, making you a little paranoid. I'm not paranoid. You're paranoid. CDW can implement a secure mobility solution using the HP EliteBook with Intel 8th generation processors and SureView privacy to protect your screen from prying eyes. Did you follow me here? IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. Find out more at cdw.com slash HP security. What was that? The first Mercury astronauts were more or less along for the ride. They had little to do. The rocket went up, their capsule came back down. But Buzz knew that the moon was the goal, meaning the complexity was about to increase exponentially. NASA would soon need people for the Gemini and Apollo programs who were fluent in navigating space and finding and docking with other spacecraft. In short, NASA would need more than just hotshot test pilots. They would need brilliant engineers who understood complex orbital mechanics. In 1963, Dr. Buzz again applied to become an astronaut. This time, NASA was requiring either test pilot experience or 1,000 hours of flight time in a jet aircraft. Buzz had more than 2,000. He was in. Finally, the stars were calling. Neil Buzz and Michael traded their military green flight suits for NASA Blue. Buzz was the first astronaut with an advanced degree and, based on his studies, was assigned to help NASA develop docking scenarios. Soon, he earned the name Dr. Rendezvous. His fellow astronauts did not always intend that as a compliment. It was said he could outcompute a computer. A loner among his fellow astronauts, Buzz was regarded as an easy man to admire, but a hard man to like. But he was also, according to one of his trainers, the best scientific mind to ever go into space. Neil's first trip into space aboard Gemini 8 was almost his last. After docking with an unmanned Agena target vehicle, he and crewmate Dave Scott suddenly realized that their capsule was rotating. Neil used the capsule's thrusters to stop their rotation. Except that it didn't work. Nothing Neil did seemed to stop the joint spacecraft from tumbling end over end. Something must be wrong with the Agena. Scott separated the two spacecraft, and Neil backed their capsule away. However, instead of finding themselves stabilized, the capsule's spin began accelerating. The capsule was spinning at one revolution a second. Neil and Dave's vision was beginning to blur. When the rates became quite violent, uh, I concluded that we just uh, we couldn't continue. I was afraid we might lose consciousness. If Neil didn't stop this, they would soon pass out and die. He noticed that his thruster propellant reserve indicated less than 30%. There was no way it should be that low, even with all the maneuvers he'd been attempting. One of his thrusters must be locked in the on position. Neither of us thought that Gemini might be the culprit because you could easily hear the Gemini thrusters where whenever they fired, crack, 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 and we weren't hearing anything. The reason we didn't hear it is you don't hear it when it's running steadily. Neil shut the entire system off and engaged the thrusters designed to orient the spacecraft for atmospheric reentry. It was a dangerous choice. They'd need those thrusters to get home. But if they didn't get this issue fixed, they wouldn't be going home. By the time Neil regained control of the spacecraft, he'd used up 75% of the re-entry thruster fuel. That meant they'd have to cancel the rest of the mission and return to Earth immediately. 
It was a great disappointment to us uh, to have to cut that flight short. We had so many things we wanted to do. While the mission was more or less considered a bust, one thing stood out. Neil Armstrong. Not only did he not break under pressure, his quick thinking and skilled piloting saved the mission. Michael's first mission was Gemini 10, during which he conducted a number of spacewalks. His orders were to exit the capsule and traverse the length of the Agena spacecraft they docked with. But there weren't nearly enough handholds built onto either spacecraft, and Michael couldn't wrap his bloated, pressurized gloves around the ones that were there. Then I went cartwheeling, ass over tea kettle, uh, up and around and about, until I came to the end of my tether, and then it swung me in a great big arc. I mean, it was more acrobatics and a guy on a trapeze. As terrifying an experience as that was, Michael later said he felt like a Roman god riding the skies in his chariot. Buzz flew on Gemini 12, the final Gemini mission, alongside Jim Lovell in 1966. When Gemini 12's radar failed in orbit, Buzz had to use an old-fashioned sextant and rendezvous charts that he helped create to successfully locate their Agena spacecraft. Before Buzz left, his wife Joan said that she was convinced that once Buzz got back, their relationship would be much more magical and meaningful because of this experience. But after Buzz returned home, he instead fell into a deep depression. This dark period, coming right on the heels of such an astonishing personal accomplishment, would not be Buzz's last. It would happen again. So how did Neil, Buzz, and Michael make it onto Apollo 11? Sure, they had the resume and they had the skills, but how exactly did these three men get chosen for the moon? Each part of Apollo was tested in stages. Two uncrewed missions, four crewed missions to test the various spacecraft, and finally, the seventh mission, the landing itself. Most people assume the astronauts were assigned to their missions ahead of time, with Neil, Buzz, and Michael knowing they were going to the moon from the very beginning. But that wasn't the case. Because NASA knew that any hiccup, either a sick astronaut or a malfunctioning spacecraft, would throw the entire rotation into chaos. And there were a lot of traumatic hurdles on the way to the moon. One astronaut was repeatedly injured in training. Three others were killed in a series of plane crashes. And of course, on January 27, 1967, the Apollo program stopped cold when Ed White, Gus Grissom, and Roger Chaffee, the crew of Apollo 1, were burned to death in a training exercise. Apollo astronauts Roger Chaffee, Edward White, and Gus Grissom lose their lives in a tragic flash fire aboard their grounded space capsule. The tragedy occurred during a simulated countdown for the first flight of the Apollo program. If Ed White's name sounds familiar, that's because he was Buzz's friend who encouraged him to get an advanced degree and apply to become an astronaut. Meanwhile, Michael Collins began losing sensation in his legs. Sometimes they would buckle beneath him while he was walking, and he'd end up sprawled on the ground. He developed a bone spur in his neck, pressing on his spinal cord, and he had to be yanked for surgery. For all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created On Christmas the Eve, the Earth. 1968, as Apollo 8 orbited the moon, Deke Slayton, the director of flight crew operations, pulled Neil Armstrong aside. He told Neil he was being given command of Apollo 11. Unless something threw a monkey wrench into NASA's plans, this was going to be the mission that would land on the moon. Michael Collins had just returned to duty after a successful surgery, and Slayton wanted to put him on Apollo 11. And by this time, Neil had been teamed with Buzz. 
but Slayton gave Neil the option of replacing him. A lot of people didn't like Buzz. He was a bossy know-it-all and rubbed many people in the program the wrong way. Slayton offered Jim Lovell in his place. But Neil said that he wanted to keep Buzz. He'd never had any issues with him. And besides, Buzz's arrogance was equal to his skills. The perfect companion to accompany him to the surface of the moon. And just like that, the crew of Apollo 11 was cemented. There would be no further reshuffling. Less than a year later, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins would leave for the moon. It was, more than anything else, pure dumb luck. Before we get back to the Apollo spacecraft, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that while Neil, Buzz, and Michael were obviously thrilled to be going to the moon, their wives greeted the news somewhat differently. When Joan Aldrin found out that Buzz had been selected, she didn't know whether to cheer or weep. She suddenly found herself wishing she'd married a carpenter or a truck driver, anything but an astronaut. Neil's wife, Janet, was angry with her husband because the closer the launch date came, the more withdrawn and uncommunicative Neil became. She had to force him to sit down with their children and explain that if something went wrong, Daddy would not be coming home. Apollo, Apollo 11, Houston, as the sun sinks slowly in the west, the white team bids you good night. Hey, you're on your pay today, darling. All right, good night, all. Day two is over. On day three, July 18th, a million things need to go right to ensure Apollo 11 makes it to the moon in one piece. The Apollo program is the result of hundreds of companies, tens of thousands of people, and billions of dollars. On our next episode, we'll look at how we built Apollo and why, believe it or not, most Americans did not want to see us go to the moon. This podcast is a production of iHeartRadio and Tradecraft Studios. Executive producers, Ash Sorohia and Scott Bernstein. In association with High Five Content, and executive producer, Andrew Jacobs. Amazing research and production assistance by associate producers, Brianne Chosaw and Natalie Robamed. Our incredible editor is Bill Lance. Original music by Henry Benoit. The experts who contributed to this episode were NASA historian, Bill Barry, Neil Armstrong biographer, James Hansen, and Mission Control's Steve Bales and Poppy Northcutt. Thanks to this episode's voice actor, Chris Germain. Licensing rights and clearances by Deborah Correa. This is a brand new podcast, and we're so excited to be sharing it with you. Help us spread it far and wide. Tell your friends, leave ratings and reviews, and chat about it on social media. Our hashtag is 9DIJ. We would love to hear what you think. New episodes come out every week, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brandon Fibbs. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next episode. Hello, Earthlings. It's Kesha. I'm so excited to be bringing you my new podcast, Kesha and the Creepies. You may know me from my party jams like We Are Who We Are and TikTok, but it's my curiosity for the unexplainable, the mystical, the magical that drives these conversations with exciting pop culture guests and experts in the occult and all things creepy. Listen and follow Kesha and the Creepies on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Debbie Brown, the host of the Dropping Gems podcast, a podcast about the depth and potential of personal growth. 
No one's journey is the same as the next, but the magic of being human shows up in the things we have in common. Our capacity for love, pain, joy, sadness, togetherness, and solitude are things that make us perfectly imperfect. And I wanna explore with you how we can live our best through it all. The new season of Dropping Gems is available now. Listen to Dropping Gems on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.